Welcome to tomorrow's Supply Chain Podcast brought to you by QAD. Tune in alongside a global audience as industry leaders discuss best practices and critical issues impacting supply chains today and tomorrow. Today, we'll be discussing the challenges facing the automotive industry in 2022. My name is Laura Monroe, and I'll be the moderator for this broadcast. I'm delighted to share the table today with my colleague, Trevor Long, who's a senior sales executive with QAD, manages our EMEA business territory. Also joining us is Mark Gallivan, who manages QAD's long-term business development outside of North America. Mark is also a seasoned motoring journalist in his time outside of QAD, an industry watcher, and writes for European and broadsheet financial publications on motoring. We've picked a few interesting automotive industry topics to share with you today. Some of them you've probably been asking yourself recently, like why are new cars so expensive? And one which might come as a surprise if you're currently considering buying a new electric car. Lastly, for managers within the European automotive industry, we'll also offer tips on how you can supercharge your customer's core experience at the dealership by offering more visibility on the delivery of parts and even updates on when their car will be completed its scheduled service. So more on that later. So let me first come to you, Mark, EVs or electric cars. Now, I've been toying with the idea of buying one myself, especially as they've seemed sustainable and contribute significantly to reducing my carbon footprint. So I've seen the glossy television commercials of buying a new electric car, um, and it appears to be a good next choice. So am I right about that? <laughs> Thanks, Laura, and good to join you all today. Um, okay, I certainly agree that electric cars are the future. And it's critical that we all do our own bit to reduce, wherever possible, the amount of carbon emissions coming out of the tailpipes of our cars. And none of us can deny the damage that fossil fuel cars, particularly ones with diesel engines, which are popular in EMEA, are doing to the environment uh, by emitting noxious gases. So put simply, it all needs a collective effort to be reduced. Okay, so I should buy a new electric car then. Well, before you dive in, there are a few things you and probably our listeners today should be aware of. Firstly, the aim, isn't the aim of every buyer of a new electric car to reduce their own carbon footprint with the car they're going to choose and buy? But that there is where the well-meaning drive trips itself up a little bit. When you correlate what we call the total life cycle assessment of each car produced. In other words, the carbon footprint of, of the car or life of the car from the design sketch in the design studio right through to the crusher. So let me explain what I mean about that. It takes typically between four and five years for a new car to be brought to the market. It has to be signed off by the manufacturer and years liver, you know, later be delivered onto the showroom floor. And that, of course, requires people, lots and lots of people, to mine the raw materials, ship them internationally, source them in, in places they, 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 which are far away from the factory, transport them to the factories, and again, often in far away places that are providing tax breaks and cost cuts. So then you need to look at the thousands of people to, to assemble, to test the cars for safety, promote them, and sell the cars in the dealerships. Unless we forget all those people need to travel to work daily to and from in their cars and on public transport. And you know, they're in their offices, they're in the, they're in the studios, they're in the, the manufacturing plants. All of those people 
are adding to a collective carbon footprint. And that's just to build one single model of car. This, of course, is you know, this is a way that Henry Ford hit upon the idea of the assembly line. But if we fast forward to today in 2022, the world's not just gone electric SUV mad. They're now thinking of ditching their fossil fuel car for a far cleaner electric car. Okay, so listening to this, I feel like you're helping my argument. Was I right? <laughs> well, yes, on paper, you should be. But that right there is where the electric car conundrum starts. If we take Volvo, which is, as we know, one of the most respected car makers with their own relentless focus on passenger safety, and now they are in a drive to rid the planet of polluting gas guzzlers. Volvo's aim is a particularly aggressive one, to be climate neutral by 2040. Now, in the surprising move, Volvo has stated that making one of its electric cars with all its inherent high carbon intensive production is actually 70% higher with a footprint to produce and manufacture than the equivalent Volvo petrol car, based upon Volvo's own total life cycle assessment. Now, to be fair, if that car is charged by uh, a, a charger in a public station using sustainable energy, that figure actually plummets. But still, 70% higher is a, is a huge difference to, say, a petrol car. Seriously, is that right? I'm afraid so. And then it gets more illuminating. Volvo is also saying that it takes up to nine years of driving before one of their EVs actually becomes greener. So it claims that, say, it's new Volvo C40, a pure electric crossover, will need to be driven in excess of 68,000 miles to fully offset the manufacturing carbon footprint. Essentially then, if we look at the second or even the third owner, they're the individuals that are, that are reaping the benefits of the lower emissions from an EV. So why is that? What's influencing this? Yeah, there are a number of factors. And, and, and the, the first one obviously is the carbon intensity of the car's electric battery and the steel production. And buyers need to ask the dealer uh, who's selling them the car, what is the total carbon footprint of the car from, from cradle to grave versus the existing well-maintained car that they own? You know, every customer is entitled to know this. Uh, in many cases, the existing car that you actually own, that you're running at the moment, as long as it's not a big, heavy, luxury car with, with, big, with big and heavy emissions, you know, it adds less to the world's carbon pollution than say a brand new electric car that has to be made from scratch. So you'd ask, you'd ask the question, why? Well, this is chiefly because the car you own today, it already exists. You know, it's, it's, it's in your driveway and it's probably offset most of the carbon heavy deficit footprint, you know, to date. Yeah, so I mentioned this is important to me, but how important hmm. are carbon footprints to car manufacturers? Oh, oh they are very important. And every car maker has a significant vested interest in reducing them. E even in the EU, since 2020, the EU has set targets for climate neutrality, uh, particularly if they want to reduce net reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. So that's not too far away. And to do this, the EU has set up stringent targets for car makers to meet what they call the fleet-wide average uh, target. And that actual target is 95 grams of CO2 emissions for each manufacturer. Now, okay, people are listening to this, asking the question, what does that actually mean? Let's say you're a, you're a German car maker and you sell hatchbacks, crossovers, 
mid-sized and large SUVs, saloons, performance variants. Even you might have a sports car in your fleet. All of those cars collectively, all those models in all those segments, they have to meet a average 95 grams of target to hit the CO2 goal that they'd be given by the EU. And this is why they are promoting electric car adoption as if their lives depended on it. And they're putting in things such as electric hybridization, such as hybrid cars, plug-in hybrids, fully electric cars, all in an aim to reduce their own fleet's emissions. And, of course, to avoid the EU's hefty fines. So, absolutely, it's in their interest to do this. Yeah. Well, Mark, if we turn to the automotive market for a moment, particularly in the UK where Trevor's based, and and we'll get to Trevor in just a moment, I want to hear from him. Sure. I've been hearing that times are tough for customers and car makers. Yeah, they are. They're tough for both. I mean, if you look at the data, the first thing people are now asking is, why are new cars in Europe just so expensive? So if we take the UK, the average price for a new car has ridden steeply. Uh, if you turn, you know, if you look, look at the, the surge in UK prices of, of used cars, again, they have come up as well. So you could trade in a, a, a used car that's maybe two years old and get nearly 80% of the price back. This, in turn, has led to a, a waiting list of, of, for, for new cars of up to 12 months. And buyers are simply not waiting around that long. What do you think has stoked the price rises? Yeah, there's a number of things. The, the, a number of factors would, would, would obviously be the, the pent-up demand after lockdowns in Europe during COVID. And then there's the fears of catching COVID on public transport, which is a legitimate one. But principally, it's down to supply and demand. The top 20 UK car dealers saw profits rise by a staggering 627%. Globally, car manufacturers saw their profits rise to nearly 300%, which equates to a massive 60 billion pounds. And then there are the economic factors, uh, which which no no buyer and no car manufacturer has an influence in. And if you look at, for instance, uh, inflation, in the UK, that's now well over 10%, which is, which is quite worrying for the economy. And this means, of course, goods and services are more expensive. Even the raw materials for cars are more expensive. If you look at the price of rubber for making tires, that's shot up by 90, 79%. If you look at the energy uh, to power the manufacturing plants, that's up by half. And then the nickel, which is the key component in recharging uh, batteries, to source that and, and, and to make it, that actually has gone up by a whopping 100%. Wow. Well, Mark, are there bottlenecks in the supply chain causing all of this? Yeah, there's, there's one big bottleneck uh, that we're all aware of, semiconductors. So mm-hmm. if, you look at, if you look at a typical semiconductor, you know, what is it? It's, it's a small little chip, which is probably the size of your fingernail. But they are crucial when building a new car. For example, a new electric car needs between 3,000, maybe 4,000 semiconductor chips just in one car because they power everything. So you'd have the mirrors, the airbags, the electric seats, every, all the electric components that are in the car are powered by chips. And the trouble for car manufacturers need, needing semiconductors is this, they simply cannot get enough of them. Taiwan is the world's biggest producer of chips and now is in a territorial face-off between it and China. So for any geopolitical interruption to happen, it would absolutely wreak havoc with the world's automotive supply chain. And during the pandemic, car manufacturers, they stop production. They, they cease plants in, in, in producing cars. And now they are in a race to catch up. But if you look at the challenge for car makers, it gets even bigger. 
because they typically only buy one in nine of the semiconductors sold globally around the world. So the majority of those are used in electronic devices such as smartphones, and there now is a very limited supply for manufacturers of cars to get their hands on them. So with all of this going on, good grief, yes. is there any good news? There, there is, there is, there is some good news. And it, it may sound, it might, it might all sound grim, but immersed in all this supply chain turmoil and upheaval, some car manufacturers are looking at clever initiatives to offset, you know, what we call it, the impatient customer buying frustrations. They want a new car, they can't get them. So looking at different, different ways, such as transparency. So particularly dealers are looking at how they can give live updates for customers waiting to delivery of a new car. Where's the car? How long will it be? How long before it's shipped over? Has the car been built yet? Et cetera. And also looking at a customer's own car for brand loyalty. They want to make sure they look after the customer, the car is in being serviced, and they're waiting on, say, a critical part. It could be a semiconductor chip. They, they, they can actually offer a portal for, for more views as to where the car is at the current time and when the car will be back home with them. So added to that, um, car manufacturers are looking at nearshoring and divesting out of certain regions, the particular supply chain of parts. And this throws up an exit, an, you know, a, another problem in terms of vetting the supplier. They want to make sure a brand new supplier is properly vetted and then mitigate the existential risk of doing business with a supplier which exposed on a, on a sanction list. Mark, thank you for sharing this. It's certainly a lot to think about. So let's take a look at the nearshoring. And what this means for manufacturing companies is this can involve working with new suppliers and logistics partners. So Trevor, what is the necessity to vet new suppliers, partners, and what are some of the risks? Um, thank you, Laura. So I think that when talking about risks, um, a good place to start is by considering the dangers uh, of ignoring restricted party screening. So that would lead to the question, what is restricted party screening? So, you know, to, to summarise that, companies that work globally, they're actually obliged to screen orders against what's known as restricted or denied party lists. So denied party lists, they're sort of government, um, international lists of people, groups, entities, who it's actually illegal to do business with. And typically they may be people or, or groups involved with terrorism, organized crime, illegal trade of weapons, you know, and a whole load of other serious offenses. Yeah, well, so what are the consequences of non-compliance? So um, consequences of non-compliance, they can actually get incredibly serious. So uh, it can be fines that run into the hundreds of millions of sort of pounds, dollars or euros and even include prison sentences. And the thing is that this is actually applicable to all types of companies, you know, even including big mature organisations where you would actually expect there to be controls in place. Um, in fact, in the last few weeks, uh, there's been an example where a financial institution actually had a number of compliance failures for working with denied parties that were connected with weapons of mass destruction. And why this happened was because they outsourced their screening to a third party. And the third party only screened on a monthly basis. Now, there was new additions to one of the sanctions lists and they weren't picked up. And that meant that there was multiple failures for the same person. So in an ever-changing world, you know, laws, regulations, they continue to get ever more complex. If we just look at sort of like the situation in the, uh, the EU at the moment, 
So over the last six months, the EU and the US, they've imposed numerous sanctions on, you know, senior Russian officials and companies. You know, that's been in a very sort of um, organized, sort of coordinated action. Now, one thing to stress is it really does require global thinking. So if you consider that even for the EU and the non-US companies, there's one thing to be, you know, really, really aware of. So the US Office of Foreign Asset Control, that you know, sub sometimes referred to as OFAC, they can actually fine non-US companies for sanctions violations if they make payments in US dollars. So Trevor, with so many of these changes, compliance screening sounds like a very onerous ongoing task. Yeah, I, um, I think you're right. And the key point um, is that all companies involved in international trade need to be aware that sanctioned groups and individuals, they change all the time. Um, and, you know, it's not just applicable to the end recipient of the goods, but also the whole supply chain, you know, including the logistics providers, the brokers. In fact, you know, any person or company involved in moving or handling the products as they pass through your supply chain. And, you know, reference the automotive industry, that's got one of the most complex supply chains. And, you know, it can be that there's thousands of additions and subtractions and changes, you know, to these denied party lists in any given year. So remaining compliant, you know, with restricted party screening can be a real challenge if you have to do this manually. So, Trevor, I want to kind of bring all of this back to the automotive companies. Since yeah. That's what we started talking about. So how does this relate to that? OK, so uh, in a typical example, then let's say a spare part for a service or replacement keys and they're being shipped by parcel to, to a dealership. Um, okay, from, say, Germany to the UK. Now, recently, there's been a global move towards online shopping and, you know, even a lot more B2C parcel shipping from manufacturers. And so there's, uh, you know, a really big escalated concern with regards to non-compliant shipments. And there's sort of plenty of evidence that criminals are using this massive surge in parcel as an opportunity to, you know, ship things illegally. So because of this, um, governments around the world, they're very keen to focus on parcel shipping you know, and lists are continually being updated. And Trevor, I mean, could we say that particularly with more parcels, there's more opportunity now for fraudulent activities and, and, and in effect, more reason for companies to be extra vigilant? I, I, I would say very much so. You know, as the number of things goes up, um, you know, it's easier to potentially to hide things and, and to get things through. Um, so what one QAD Precision customer is actually doing, it's a carrier. Um, based in the EU, and they're screening each and every parcel um, going across borders. You know, so they want to make sure they have an audit trail of everything going through their network, just to ensure that nothing slips through. So, in in effect, if this is used uh, in a car dealership example, uh, in addition to remaining compliant, the the correct screening process would ensure that there is no adverse public relation or brand damage to, to the manufacturer, which is obviously so important you know, in the automotive industry these days. That's a great point. So thank you for sharing about the potential pitfalls and best practices for compliance screening. Mark also touched upon delivery of spare parts for car services and customer transparency, which sounds interesting. Can you elaborate? Yeah, so um, to sort of like uh, to paint the picture and set the context for discussing sort of visibility and transparency, 
So you know, let's view the world through the eyes of a customer in the UK who stayed with the same automotive brand for the last 10 years and they've taken their car in for service. So, you know, in this hypothetical situation, they've been told to expect that their car will be returned within two days because the part is being shipped from Germany. So what happens if the part gets delayed? It could be you may not know where it is. You may not know when it will arrive. Then the phone rings and it's the customer and they want to confirm that everything is still OK for the car to be returned as you agreed. But you don't know because you don't have the answer. So which has the potential to escalate into a customer service issue? So what are they looking at doing to address it? So um, this is where some car manufacturers, they're looking to take control and proactively manage, manage customer expectations when things aren't going according to plan. But to do this, you need to know which are the shipments that do have problems or may soon have a delivery problem. This sounds interesting, Trevor. I mean, at a high level, could you share maybe a few more details? Yeah, so so again, some of the companies that, that we're speaking with, they're looking at ways to track and manage all of their deliveries by exception. So this will provide them with a centralised portal to track all shipments with all carriers that they're using anywhere in the world. So effectively, it's a single location to get visibility of all shipments from the time of the carrier pickup right through to final delivery. And you know, when you're using multiple carriers, managing visibility can be such a challenge because different carriers use different status updates. You know, so having a way for the shippers to actually harmonize all these codes is great for customer service. It adds more consistency to their processes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and how, how does all that actually work? So because it's exception based, if a package, you know, in for package mean, you know, spare part for your service yeah. is at risk of missing its promised delivery date, an alert will be sent to the appropriate personnel so they can take action. And then so imagine that this was without an exception based alerts, your customer servicing would be inundated with you no know, Wismo calls. So you know, that's where is my order? Um, you know, so with exception alerts you'll know before your customer if there is a problem. So Trevor, what if items aren't just late, but they're lost? So uh, that's a very good question because unfortunately that does happen. So um, if items get lost, you can raise traces, you know, for things that are lost or damaged shipments. And, you know, it also allows you to contact the carrier and collaborate, you know, to resolve the issues as and when they arise. And this applies to both domestic and international shipping. So overall, it sounds like this is a very powerful way to keep your customers informed throughout the delivery journey. Yeah, and, and certainly, I mean, just looking from the automotive industry, like many others, the customer service aspect is, is critical. And any innovative ways that the dealership or the brand wants to increase its service uh, is a great way of staying ahead of the competition. Absolutely. Guys, this was an interesting topic, and I, I want to thank both of you for being on here today um, and all of our listeners for tuning in to tomorrow's Supply Chain Podcast brought to you by QAD. So we're excited to bring you more episodes, so be sure to tune in. You can watch our live stream on our QAD LinkedIn pages or tune into our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or Pandora. And with that, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.